we're going to finish the series in John 9. Uh, and so if some of you have been here over the last while, uh, over August, of course, uh, many have been in, in tents and doing all sorts of things uh, around the country and beyond. But if you've been around and paying attention, <clears throat> you will have noticed that John's gospel is laid out to us in a sort of uh, treasure hunt uh, with careful and sometimes cryptic uh, clues laid out for us to follow. The first two clues in the story of John, in the Gospel of John, the first two clues, he says, here's clue number one, and then something happens. And then the second time, it says, here's clue number two, and then something happens. And then from then on, we're kind of on our own. Uh, and John sort of invites us to use our imagination and our initiative to be following the clues through to the end of the story. The word that John uses for clue in, his, uh, in the Gospel, at least translated into English, is sign. And he wants them to be just that, signs, something that draw our attention, but then point our attention to something else. Imagine I told you I was going somewhere special, and I jumped in my car and drove for many hours and used a ferry and drove for many hours, and then I got to a spot where there was this big sign that said, Paris. Uh, and then I jumped out my car and I took some photos and was enamored by the sign and then phoned you and said, I'm by the Paris sign. You'd, be, you'd say, you're being ridiculous, Clark. Go in the direction that the sign is pointing in. You'd say, what is the sign pointing towards? Go in that direction and then there will be uh, the Eiffel Tower and crepes and amazing Parisian pastries and all sorts of wonderful things. And so with these signs with John, we need to consider uh, what they're pointing us to <clears throat> without being unhelpfully distracted by the sign itself. So we've got these seven signs that are laid out in the story of John. Uh, and what he actually does right in the beginning, he gives us the sort of spoiler about what all those signs are going to be pointing towards, albeit he uses some cryptic language to do so. So in, in the prologue, in the beginning of John's gospel, he uses this phrase, to kind of help us understand where all the signs are pointing towards. He uses this phrase, the Word made flesh. And if we use all our understanding of the whole story of John, maybe we could kind of paraphrase that or extend that a little bit to say that what all these signs are pointing towards in the story of John is God's transforming love, is drawing near, and is transforming the world around us in strange and unexpected ways. So today we'll have a look at another of the seven signs. We'll look at the sixth of those seven signs and what this teaches us about the Word made flesh and what this might mean for our lives today. The sixth sign, if you want to guess, the sixth sign is about spit and soil and suffering and sight. The sixth soil if the sixth soil. The sixth story, the sixth sign, if you're familiar with it, is the story where Jesus heals the man who was born blind from birth. It is a wild story, and it takes up the whole of John chapter nine chapter nine. Um, so rather than reading the whole of John chapter nine, I'm going to save your time, but also my voice, <laughs> uh, and I'm going to show us a short animated video, which kind of is a paraphrased take on the story in John chapter nine. It was made by some colleagues and friends of mine at Tear Fund. One day, as Jesus walked along, he saw a man. He had been blind from birth. Poor guy, said one of Jesus' disciples. 
Master, who is to blame for this blindness? Is it the man or his parents? No one is to blame. No one has done anything wrong. You're asking the wrong question. The right one, the question to ask with everything, is what can God do? You see a problem that you need to explain. But I see the possibility for God's beautiful work. For as long as I am in the world, there is plenty of light for everyone to see by. I am the world's light. Jesus spat on the ground, created mud with his fingers, and wiped it across the man's eyes. Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Later, the disciples discuss what they had seen. It was pretty unusual what he did. I thought it was a beautiful miracle, but I keep thinking about that thing Jesus said, him being the light for everyone to see by. What does that mean? What does he see that we don't? Word got around, and no one could believe what had happened. It really is me. I'm the one who used to beg. The man they called Jesus healed me. They took him to the Pharisees. Tell us how it happened. I told you already. It was Jesus. He put mud on my eyes and when I washed it off, I could see. And he did it on the Sabbath? He can't be of God. If Jesus were not from God, how could he open my eyes? Even though he could now see, they were still reaching for ways to exclude and disqualify him, exposing how completely they had rejected his humanity because of his blindness. They couldn't see all the ways he was bringing glory to God, revealing a blindness of their own. Gah! You must be a disciple of Jesus to think something like this is possible. You were born blind. You were steeped in sin from the start. Throw him out. After hearing what had happened, Jesus found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? Tell me, and I will believe. You have now seen him. I am the Son of Man. Lord, I believe. I came into the world to bring everything into the clear light of day, so that those who have never seen will see. And those who have made a great pretense of seeing will be exposed as blind. I find it so interesting that in that moment, when Jesus is with his disciples and they see this blind man begging, their question to Jesus is about the cause. They ask him about the source of the suffering, essentially asking Jesus, whose fault is it that this man is experiencing this situation? Their assumption is that the man's situation is as a result of sin, either his sin or the sin of his parents. And uh, it's an assumption that is based on what I would call quite a mechanistic, like machine, a mechanistic uh, kind of understanding of the world. 
It's this understanding that cause and effect are always directly and clearly related. The sort of cosmic moral slot machine version of the universe. It's a, if you can show the next uh, slide, it's a belief that we can always draw a very clear line between a person's current experience or situation, and the next slide, with the individual's prior action. It's a sense that we can always draw that line there between cause and situation as a singular, clear, obvious line. Now, today, I imagine perhaps few of us might respond with the same question in those words uh, with Jesus. Um, kind of, if we saw a blind man, we were walking with Jesus, I don't think for most of us we'd be like, is it his parents' sin that caused this? I, I don't know that that's maybe the first question that would come to us in our context. Maybe uh, that sounds a little bit more like something like karma. But I think there are other ways that the subtle underlying mechanistic uh, kind of worldview, this vision of the, what the world is like, that this is subtly still present in the world around us that we live in today. Maybe closer to home in the 21st century, uh, in the Western Hemisphere at least, there's this uh, embedded within the widespread, I'd say ubiquitous American dream, this myth of meritocracy, the sense that any single person, that if they work hard enough, strive long enough, that they too can climb the ladder of social mobility, that they can, they can quote, make it. Maybe we see this also in kind of Christian circles online in uh, what I would call the hashtag blessed culture, that sense of a, a very simplified unnuanced sense that I have good things in my life because God has given them to me because God has hashtag blessed me. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you've heard that Christian who, for them, whenever they face any challenge or disappointing situation, that is, they're facing that singularly and simply because of the work of the devil. Or perhaps simply and singularly because God is testing them or because God is punishing them or something like that. Um, maybe sort of adjacent to this, um, Sarah was sent uh, a meme by, or uh, by a little, I don't know what you call it, a little picture by someone this week and it said, uh, when God puts a Goliath in front of you, it's because he knows there's a David inside of you. Of course, I think there's a measure of truth in all of these that we could explore. But what does the Bible offer us when we try and grapple with and make sense of suffering, of privilege, of blessing, of cause and effect? I think the Bible kind of invites us into complexity, into something that's more nuanced, into something that is often mysterious and paradoxical. On the one hand, I believe that the Bible teaches that our actions matter, that to some degree we reap what we sow, that we, are, excuse me, that we are in some ways responsible before God for our actions. Uh, I believe that the Bible teaches us that action that is not in line with the character of God, perhaps we could call that action sin, that that action contributes to this, the suffering and brokenness in our world. It's all that on the one hand. But on the other hand, I believe that the Bible seems to refuse to individualize and simplify the links we can discern between actions and circumstances. Yes, good things often happen as a result of good actions. <clears throat> hard work might produce good marks at school. Or hard work at work might get you the job that you want. 
And bad things often happen through bad actions. Sometimes drunkenness contributes towards car accidents. But this is not inevitable in a simple, mechanistic, individualized way. Sometimes you work hard but don't get the grades or the job that you want. Sometimes drunk drivers get away with it. Perhaps one of the most helpful stories in the Bible when trying to grapple with some of these ideas is the strange and quite disturbing story of Job in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with that story, Job loses his wealth, loses his health, loses his family. It's honestly pretty awful, the situation that he's in. And his friends gather around him, and what do they say? They say, the situation that you're facing, they draw a very clear line. They say, what you're facing is because of God punishing you for your sin, your action. You are the fault, at fault, you are the cause. And Job's like, I don't know, I don't think so. And what we see from God is that God doesn't seem to think so either. Instead, God seems to invite Job into, and I think invite us into, mystery. And into a journey of trying to uh, accept and grapple with God's goodness despite his circumstances. So, back to Jesus in John chapter 9. Jesus' response is maybe, uh, Jesus does what he does so often in the Gospels. Perhaps annoyingly, when he's asked a question so often, what he does is doesn't answer the question. At least not in the way that we're hoping or expecting. And um, rather than giving us a sort of simple, ultimate solution to the problem of evil, he reframes the question that he's asked. So if you remember in the video, or if you've read the story before, the disciples ask him, why is this man experiencing the situation he's in, uh, or visual impairment? Why is he experiencing this? Is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus' response, if you look at the paraphrase from the video, Jesus says this, you're asking the wrong question. The right question is what can God do? You see a problem that you need to explain. I see the possibility of God's beautiful work. Arguably what Jesus sees when he sees this blind begging man is not the result of that man's sin or his parents' sin. He sees a man who's marginalized and alienated from the center of Jewish society because of the religious beliefs of those in power, the Pharisees. Arguably, this man is not impoverished, marginalized, and suffering because of his visual impairment, but because of the way he has been treated and excluded by the Pharisees who saw him as different, as dirty, as not good enough, as other as unclean, as sinful. Now, of course, the sign in John's gospel, as I said, is about sight. And in one level, the story is about God breaking into a man's life so that he is now able to see. But at another level, the story is about the blindness of the Pharisees. It's a story about their blindness to see what God was doing, the unexpected, the mysterious, the challenging, the transforming work that God was doing. The Pharisees were holding on so tightly to their interpretations and their teachings of Scripture to the way they saw the world, to this mechanistic understanding of the world of simplified cause and effect, that they were blind to the light of the world right in front of them. And eerily, in some ways, it was their own blindness that was causing and contributing this man's suffering. 
As is so often the case when we look at the Gospels, it's so easy to kind of throw stones, time-traveling stones at the Pharisees and be like, look at those Pharisees, they're so bad. But what does the story mean for us, for me and for you today in 2023? What is the strange story of spit and soil and suffering and sight? What does it offer us? I think there's an invitation here. I think there's an invitation in the story for us to consider our own blindness where we, like the Pharisees, might be unknowingly bound by the comfort of our beliefs, by the rigidity of our worldviews, by the familiarity of our echo chambers. Our blindness might be preventing us from seeing the light of the world at work in ways that are unfamiliar or just different from our own experience or maybe just operating in another space that's outside of our tribe or our in-group. In our divided and extremely polarized society, I think it's so important that we don't just ignore our blindness as we see the Pharisees doing. Just as the Pharisees miss the transformative work of God due to their rigidity, we risk missing out on the opportunity to connect, learn, grow, empathize with others. In our cultural moment, there's an invitation to challenge ourselves to step outside our own comfort zones, our own tribal spaces, and engage with perspectives that may initially seem foreign or uncomfortable. As I reflect on this sign, I believe it points to the invitation to seek to cultivate a sense of curiosity in our lives. The sort of openness to be willing to learn from others, an openness and a humility to, to be willing to be wrong about what we've done, about our thoughts, about our worldview, about our cause and effect worldview, our theology at times. <clears throat> An invitation to increasingly see the world through the eyes of the marginalized and excluded and allowing their stories to challenge us and our assumptions and to broaden our perspectives. Our blindness can perpetuate harm and division and injustice in society and the world around us. But just as uh, the healing of this man who was born blind uh, kind of demonstrates as a sign God's presence, our willingness to recognize and address our own blindness can be a powerful sign of God's love and transformation at work, in action. So... Uh, with the help of the light of the world, may we learn to see. May we learn to see in some ways where we don't see. Learn to see our blindness. Learn to find uh, humility that we would learn and grow. May we learn from those who are different to us. May we seek to address where our own blindness is causing exclusion or oppression or injustice for others. May we cultivate increasingly empathy and curiosity for others, particularly those who are different to us in some way. And may we be inspired and challenged to see, may we be inspired and challenged to see beyond the surface of the stories of those around us and to actively participate in the transformation of God's love that God's love brings into the world around us. Amen.